Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to Forward Progress, the Tuesday edition where we've got an action-packed show. We'll be breaking down the Aaron Rodgers news and how this shakes up the landscape in the NFL world. Some film analysis on specific games from last week. And we'll preview the Thursday night football game. Forward Progress will have coverage every day as a reminder, Monday to Friday at 2 2 p.m., including tomorrow where Rob Pozzola, Eric Eager, Suma, and Hitman will be giving you their best bets and game-by-game betting previews. And then Thursday, Jason Cooper will be joined by Hitman and Eric Eager giving out some best bets for Thursday night. If you're not already, you should really subscribe. Hit the notifications bell so you don't miss any of the content. Also, smash the like button. Show some love to the creators taking their time to provide valuable insights. Of course, none of this will be possible without our sponsor, Pinnacle. Pinnacle is the world's sharpest sports book and available to bettors in Ontario. Find out what professional bettors have known for the last 25 years. 25 years of competitive odds. Your trusted sports book. Bet smart. Bet Pinnacle. Must be 19 plus in Ontario. Not available in the U.S. Please play responsibly. With that being said, I'm your host, George Sofidis, and I'm excited to get this show on the road. I'm joined today by friend of the show, uh, Sharp Clark, NFL originator, betting analyst at 4for4.com, and the man that will be joining me on Tuesdays to break down the Monday night game and some of the film we've been watching. Clark, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for the welcome, George. Good to see everyone. You know, I was worried uh, last year um, there was a lot of dud Monday night football games. And uh, last year, if we were doing this show, we might have been discussing uh, how bad Russell Wilson looks every week because they somehow got onto every primetime football game. But we got a doozy last night and we got the biggest news of the season so far. Uh, four plays in the New York Jets lost Aaron Rodgers. It looks like his Achilles is torn. Um, my first question is. Are the Jets no longer Super Bowl contenders, barring any changes to quarterback? I don't think they can win the Super Bowl with Zach Wilson. I mean, anything can happen. Their defense is really good. But it's just to, to run the gauntlet of the AFC with Zach Wilson at quarterback, I just don't see it happening. But the good news is I don't think they – like I think a lot of people are frame, framing this in terms of like they need to get a quarterback now because this is their Super Bowl window. Like they've got the defense, they've got the team. But – their team is young. They've got really, really good players on defense that are still young. They've got Garrett Wilson, who's still on a rookie deal. I think this is the beginning of a Super Bowl window, potentially, if they can get a quarterback. And I I don't think that I would break the bank to try to trade for a guy, you know, who's kind of mid, because even with Aaron Rodgers, the Jets were the fourth best team in the AFC. So I don't think this is one of those things where you need to just do whatever it takes to get a quarterback. I think this is a long-term process that the Jets are in right now. All right, we'll talk about who they might look at uh, some options, and I think they might end up going the free agent route, something that won't cost them draft capital. But let's talk about the spread because that's what everybody wants to know. Everyone tries to figure out when a starting quarterback goes down, how much is he worth to the point spread? Um, how much are you adjusting from Aaron Rodgers to Zach Wilson? I don't. I don't do numbers based on like, 
you know, here's the gap between the teams and home field, et cetera. So it's, it's a little bit hard for me to answer that directly, but um, what I'm doing is I'm putting the Jets offense back to basically where they were last year. I mean that, and like a slightly slight improvement uh, for several reasons. One, I think they have a few more weapons than they had last year. Um, Two, I think, I think it's reasonable to anticipate some growth from Zach Wilson. Like he's been really bad in his career. And I think that Aaron Rodgers has taken his mentorship role really seriously. And I think he will continue to uh, even, you know, within the, within the team, Aaron Rodgers is one of those guys who's extremely loyal to his guys. Um, And he he seems like he's really part of this Jets squad. And I think he's going to do what he can to mentor Zach Wilson through the season if they choose to stick with him. Well, they better hope so because they hired Nathaniel Hackett and it was a lot was made about him being the offensive coordinator, but it was a natural connection to Aaron Rodgers and familiarity on his own without an Aaron Rodgers. He's not very highly thought of. So when you lose an Aaron Rodgers and now it's his offense with Zach Wilson, it, it, we got to see how that marriage is going to work. Let's look at what you think the Jets are going to do. Um, I'm of the opinion that they give Zach Wilson a little audition, whether it be three or four weeks. And by then there might be some veteran quarterbacks on teams that, you know, perhaps are sitting at one and four that might decide, Hey, maybe we should jump into this Caleb Williams lottery. And if they do go that route, who do you think are some potential trade candidates the Jets should look at? Yeah, with the disclaimer that I don't look into contracts much, I think guys like Kirk Cousins, Ryan Tannehill, you know, aging veterans on teams that are realizing their window is kind of closing on this year and need to move yeah. on. Um, I think those two names come to mind, but I'm sure I'm sure everyone else has their opinions on who might be a good fit. Well, they they both happen to be entering their final year, so they're, they're the most logical candidates. My question for you is: Is there a quarterback that is realistically available? that the Jets can acquire this year and still make a run at the Super Bowl? I think it's unlikely. And I, I honestly think Zach Wilson may give them the best shot over the free agents available. Um, I know that big people are big fans of guys, guys like Jameis Winston and heard Carson Wentz be mentioned. But, you know, why get Carson Wentz when you already have Zach Wilson, who's basically Carson Wentz, right? Um, I also think the familiarity with the system, the, like the offseason program, all that matters. You know, Zach Wilson built, building confidence outside of the – Really, really bad interception too. I think it was Matt Milano uh, right before the guy in the crowd uh, flipped off the <laughs> flipped off the, the Bills. Um, other than that, I thought Zach Wilson played okay. Played, uh, you know, he still holds the ball too long. He still insists he can make a play out of structure and can't always. But I think if I see some continued growth out of him, even if the Jets are losing, they got a tough schedule coming up. If I was the Jets, I would stick with Zach Wilson unless a really good option uh, comes along. The only like wrench in this is um, potentially Salah and Joe Douglas might have their jobs on the line. And there's got to be an honest conversation with ownership because they're going to probably want to push their chips in if this is it for them. And ownership's not going to want to blow up future draft capital. Um, I thought somebody mentioned it in my group chat. I took half a second and I said, this is probably the most interesting name. And if come trade deadline, this team happens to be 0-7 and and are already looking at Caleb Williams and partnering up him up with Marvin Harrison uh, from Ohio State, maybe Arizona says uh, Kyler Murray's available and healthy. And if the Jets are sitting at 3-3, and 4-3, and they might be intrigued by that option. Let's talk about the Bills. Um, they There was a funny story. A bar in Wisconsin had invited guests over, you know, former... Aaron Rodgers was their former quarterback. And they said, hey, if the Jets lose, 
your tab is free. And people came out and when Aaron Rodgers went down, everyone started ordering up large tabs. They ended up winning and the, the bar made a lot of money. It's just a hilarious story. But my question is, you know, the Bills really choked this game away. Like you couldn't, a lot of people probably jammed some live bets and got burned by the Bills. Um, are you concerned at all by this loss? I'm not concerned from from the Bills' perspective. I mean, would I've, I like I I'm out on a limb saying the Bills are going to win the Super Bowl. They are my Super Bowl pick. I've got bets on them. I would have loved for them to win that game, but the types of things that led to their loss are not the types of things that I typically think are long term problems, not systematic problems. They struggled with the Jets' defense last year. The Jets are so talented at cornerback and on the on the defensive front, which is exactly what you have to do against the Bills team. They just match up perfectly against them. They play them well every time. You know, Josh Allen forced some throws that he shouldn't have forced, but you know, a lot of them were downfield throws. Like I think one was on third down, so it was like a punt. Like these these are the types of plays where Josh Allen was really trying to make something happen and just wasn't able to. The fumbled snap, you know, and he picks it up and and fumbles it trying to move forward. Like that basically lost in the game. Yeah. And, you know, sure, Josh Allen makes a ton of mistakes, and it, it is problematic that that happens to him in these moments. But I just think that's the type of stuff that comes and goes, and, you know, you can't rely on that happening in a game. And I still think the Bills are one of the best teams in the league. Most of the top teams struggled in some way in week one. So I still think the Bills are right up there. Well, let's talk about Josh Allen, because I said uh, about a month and a half ago in Forward Progress, he's got a little too much Brett Favre to his game for my liking. Like, he, he pushes the aggression, even on – Basic runs for an extra two yards. He's doing a somersault in the air and taking unnecessary hits to his body. Can you coach that out of him? Or do you just have to live with the good and bad that comes from someone being a gunslinger that's reckless? I would have said you can, but apparently not. Because I think that's been a point of focus for a couple of years now. And he just, you know, and, and I, I do like elements of it, right? It's that it's the same thing Patrick Mahomes has where like he, he wants to get every single yard. But the thing is, Mahomes is smarter about it. Like, when Mahomes knows he's not going to get the first down, he won't force it. Josh Allen did that somersault, you know, four yards short of the first down marker. Yeah, yeah. And like, he needs to understand that that's not a hit you can take. And this many years into the league, I think it's just a permanent fixture of his game. So yeah, I mean, always an injury risk, always, you know, always a risk of, of high variance game to game. But I think a lot of it was very, very tough environment. Monday night football in New York on 9-11 against a Jets team that was just fired up. And a defense that just loves playing you. I think this was worst case scenario. Uh, the offensive performance lined up with what they did last year against the Jets in those two games. So, you know, I, I basically think they're, the Bills are about the same. You know, I, I saw a lot of 12 personnel. Like they were they were boasting about how they're going to run two tight ends and really beef up a little bit. And they did. Problem was it didn't work against such a good defense. So I, I'm going to give them another week to, to really evaluate how that's working out. All right, let's talk about uh, division futures because there's this dynamic happening depending on what book you look at. The Miami Dolphins uh, are favorites in some books. In some books, they're like level with Buffalo. Part of it is obviously Aaron Rodgers going down. Part of it is the Bills losing a game that they were supposed to win, technically being favored on the spread. And part of it was Miami winning a game that they were technically supposed to lose. So on Pinnacle right now, they've got Miami plus 135. Buffalo plus 145. My first question before we discuss the two teams, are are you taking Jets and Patriots out of consideration now? Basically, yeah. I mean, uh, I, the Patriots were never really in consideration for me. But, um, yeah, I think I think Jets mostly drop out. You, you can't drop them out completely. With the level of their defense and the uncertainty of what they're going to do at quarterback, you know, like another guy uh, we didn't mention earlier is Andy Dalton, potentially. 
Like yeah. it doesn't take much to make this team competitive and they have that win against Buffalo already in hand. So um, Patriots, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable taking out. Not, not necessarily the Jets. All right. Of the two Miami Buffalo right now, if Clark was given a free bonus bet to put some money down, who would you rather back in this spot? Bills, easy. All right. And I will agree with you, even though the name tag says being level-headed about the Miami Dolphins, I'm trying to hold back my optimism. Let's talk some film review because, Clark, uh, I was talking with uh, Cleve and Suma, and I said I don't even look at stats until I'm done watching all the film. I don't want my eyes to be poisoned by the data. I then look at the data and see if it marries with what I saw. Um, I spent yesterday watching film. I know you have, and I know you do throughout the week. Um, let's talk about some games that we looked at on film that maybe tell a little bit more to the story or just things we wanted to point out. And we'll start with the Rams in Seattle. I want you to lead the discussion. I did a mea culpa on uh, the show yesterday, and I said, man, I was wrong on the Rams. I had them as a bottom three team in football, and no, 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 no. That Matthew Stafford I saw is not a bottom three leading quarterback uh, of a team. Tell me what you saw when watching that game. I felt a bit vindicated on this because people were surprised at how high I had the Rams uh, preseason. And Matthew Stafford, the story of this game was Matthew Stafford. His performance was one of the best quarterback performances I've seen in a long time. It was the best of the week, and I've watched to his film. No, no, no offense. Um his performance, especially on third down, was incredible. I mean, the ball placement, the vision, like seeing where his guys were going to be open and then timing the passes was so consistently good. And, you know, the run game was terrible. I think they ran the ball 40 times for maybe like 85 yards or something. I mean, yeah. And so that that led to a bunch of third downs. But check out these numbers. So, so while the game was still in, in doubt, they had 16 third downs and converted 12 of them, including one on a penalty, which is a, a, a crazy rate. But here's here's why it's even crazier. Uh, only two of those were less than four yards. So essentially went nine of nine of 13 on third and four or, or, or longer with receivers that we've never heard of. Van Jefferson dropping a big pass. Yeah, a huge pass. This was all Matthew Stafford. And it was so consistent. And he was so calm in the pocket. And it was all of his traits that he's shown, it's like people will be like, well, you know, is he injured? How, you know, is age going to get to him? Emphatically, no, at least in a one game sample size. We'll see, you know, how that changes when the 49ers defensive line comes to town next week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like if they can't run the ball against Seattle, then I don't know what's going oh, on. Uh, third and long against San Fran is a recipe for disaster. Yeah. But I think w- what we saw was two things. One was Stafford is not, is not done. He has that dog in him. And for all the reports about he doesn't even know whose receivers are, he has to, you know, his wife made a little Facebook for the receivers, whatever. All that is just noise. He's dialed in on the field, and Sean McVay is dialed in to this team. This is not a season where Sean McVay is going in and saying, yeah, we're going to tank and get, you know, a good quarterback for next year and, like, whatever. He's He wants to win now with the guys that he has, and that will be difficult all year because of the, the lack of talent on the team. But yeah. when you have a quarterback and a head coach of that caliber – it, it covers over a lot of flaws on your roster. And then, you know, Aaron Donald, obviously on the other side of the ball. I just, I just want to say like the second half Seattle sucked, but they lost their right and left tackles in that game and really good players. And it, you know, I have one of those like Cardinal rules that there's no such thing as a hundred percent black or white betting rule. But one of my Cardinal rules is never bet on a team that has a cluster injury on the offensive line. And so in the second half of that game, like, yes, yes, the, the Rams defense looked good, but, 
I think that was more to do with the injuries Seattle faced up front than anything else. So uh, Rams might be in a lot of shootouts this year. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know what? Um, oftentimes you trade pressure for, you know, lack of coverage or you trade a lack of pressure for more bodies in coverage. And I don't know what Seattle was doing, but not only were they not getting home with any of their pressure, they left some soft zones and guys were wide open. It's not like Stafford was throwing in the, to the tightest windows. He was pinpoint accurate, but it felt like nobody was around like in a four yard radius on a lot of these throws. Um, one thing that I saw was Seattle got conservative in a weird spot. It was the end of the first half. They got a turnover and they had the ball inside the Rams territory. And rather than try to pre uh, press the point and get another touchdown and possibly lead by 10, uh, no, by 13, because they're up six at that point, they almost played conservative to try to run the clock out, settled for a field goal and doinked it off the, off the crossbar. And it was kind of like, uh, you deserve that, right? You, you got you got uh, cold feet, and, and and you didn't push the point. It reminded me of, do you remember when Houston was playing the Chiefs and they had this huge lead in the playoffs? They're up by twenty one, and there was a fourth down decision, and they could have went for it on like fourth and one and potentially put the Chiefs away for good to, to make it a twenty eight point lead. They settle for a field goal, they make it twenty four point lead, and the rest is history. And it's almost like, no, I, I prefer to land the knockout blow. Stop playing to protect the lead. Uh, I like the mentality of playing to increase the lead. Uh, I also saw a little bit of lack of leadership on Seattle's part. I, You know what my question was? When, when the game started to get away from them, because at one point Stafford had 20 points in the second half and 200 yards throwing, and before Seattle even had their first down, there was nobody to say, hey, let's stop the let's stop the slide right now. Let's get something together. And then Metcalf, you know, does the boneheaded play with the cheap shot after the whistle. And, and I'm like, who's the leader on this team? And, and um, from that part, I had some concerns with Seattle. Those were my basic takeaways from the game. Yeah, I agree on, on the leadership front. I mean, you had the DK Metcalf issue and then. And then on the when the Rams got the ball back, a defensive player did this. You know, it's another. It was like a late hit or like a taunting or something. Set, you know, and sure, it set up a field goal. So it was like thirty to thirteen instead of twenty-seven to thirteen. So it wasn't like huge on the scoreboard, but it was that sort of like they lost. They lost themselves, right? Yeah. They lost themselves in that game and at home against an inferior team. And I think that is a potential problem for that team. Their body language is off. They quit. Like there was nobody yeah. to say, "Wake up! Let's 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 get back into this." Let's move on to Green Bay and Chicago. And before we do, if you're enjoying the content, please like this content. Smash the like button. Let's talk about Green Bay, Chicago. We uh, both had some strong thoughts about Green Bay and their potential upside um, before the season. I actually came away from this, and I think I was less impressed by Green Bay than a lot of people, and I'll explain some of those points. Um, one of the first observations I had, there was a key uh, drive early in the game, uh, the Bears had two shots at third and one and fourth and one. Couldn't convert. The first time they tried to sneak it with Cole Komet. The second time they did with Fields and again. And I started to have concerns. I said, okay, this whole line's not getting the push. Are they really missing Tevin Jenkins as much as uh, as it looks? I found the, the Packers constantly ripped off big chunks running the ball. Um, Jordan Love made some really good throws. I thought the touchdown to Dobbs where he steps into the pocket, fires a dart on a double move to the back of the end zone. Another observation I had was Fields plays better out of structure than in structure. Like in the pocket, I don't know what it is. Uh, they don't draw up good plays. He doesn't make many big throws. Once, once he gets out of the pocket, it's almost that old Russell Wilson of 
you have to now account for his wheels. And because of it, the corners have to stay with the receivers longer and it creates more opportunities. I think they need to get fields a lot more out of structure rather than try to make him a pure uh, pocket passer. I like Love's willingness to take deep shots. Remember I told you um, the concept of when a quarterback that's young always looks to check down, he may never break out of that mold. I'd rather have the guy understanding I get chances to take deep shots. Explosive plays are keys uh, uh, to progressing as a quarterback and learning you have that level to you. I thought Love, uh, his pocket presence isn't the best. He's got a little bit of happy feet. And against a team with a much better pass rush than Chicago, that's going to be problematic. Chicago, unfortunately, does not have the horses to um, to cause problems. Like, we want to talk about Love's big game, but, like, he's 7 for 16 at the half, and he's entering the fourth quarter, he's 11 for 22. That's not good enough in the NFL uh, from a completion percentage standpoint. And he grabbed a bunch of yards, but they came on a 50-yard screen to Aaron Jones. It came on a slant 33 yards to Aaron Jones. It came on a 35-yard busted coverage to Musgrave. So while the numbers look pretty good, I think against a better defense, you're not going to get these big plays that that uh, presented themselves against the Bears. So for myself was I enjoyed the results. I also did that game didn't feel like a Packers route to me. It got out of hand in a three-minute sample. It was a 10-point game going into the fourth, and the the Packers had the busted Musgrave coverage, uh, then a fade to Dobbs, and the very next play was the pick six. And in, in three minutes of game clock, the game flipped to a 24-point lead, and the game was gone. But I didn't feel like that was a Packers dominant performance. What What did you feel when you saw the game? I did think the Packers were the better team. Um, I, I I came up with some of the same conclusions, like encouraged about the trajectory that Jordan Love is on, but he has to be better. Um, and I think he, I think he will be, but he was not great in that game. Like, like you said, most of the big plays were things outside of his control. I love the way that they're using him. I love the way that he's, you know, taking the reins of the offense and being aggressive. And I think he'll get better, especially when Christian Watson finally returns, hopefully from injury. Yes. Um, but the big takeaway for me was the, the Packers defense was really good. And, that, and that's been the big question. The offseason is they have this talent every year. They retain Joe Barry. And a lot of people are like, why? And I think yeah. it's because they're going to do things differently this year. And and week one, you know, against a, a quarterback that they struggled with in the past in Justin Fields, I was very encouraged with their defensive performance. And we, we all question, you know, last year they spent two first round picks on Quay Walker and Devontae Wyatt, and they didn't perform well or didn't perform much. And they both had monster games yesterday. And it's like, uh oh, if those guys become what they thought they were drafting, this Green Bay defense is going to be a lot better. I also came away with the conclusion that that was game one of a 17-game sample size of Matt LaFleur's Coach of the Year tour because he was awesome yesterday. To me, he was the most impressive person um, in that game uh, on, on Sunday. Let's move over to Atlanta, Carolina. You have, I don't know how it happened, but Clark, you've been saddled as being the Atlanta guy because you were first and uh, um, because you said, oh, I see some of the extreme right tail uh, outcomes that, that could come with this team. What was your impression of Atlanta, Carolina? I was disappointed in Atlanta. I mean, obviously 24, 10 is a great scoreline to take home, but I didn't think they were particularly better than the Panthers overall. I, th I thought it was a, a pretty evenly matched game. Uh, the difference was Carolina turned the ball over three times and Atlanta did not turn the ball over. And, and, and so, uh, two fourth down stops. So like basically five turnovers 
uh, yeah. to zero. Yeah, and so I, I mean, fourth down stops. You know, they're high, they're high leverage, high variance plays, but they also happen. Like you stop yeah. them on four downs from getting ten yards. So that's typically something I give credit to the defense. And turnovers are also, you know, <laughs> they're also bad plays by the offense or great plays by the defense. But the idea that that you're going to get five of those in one game and the other team gets zeros is very rare. Um, I actually have my concerns about the way the Falcons offense worked. Um, you know, you watch Bryce Young and they trusted him to make throws and his receivers were not getting open and he threw some bad passes, but he was throwing it and they were moving the ball and the offensive line played really well. A lot of people came out of the preseason concerned about the Panthers offensive line. I was really impressed, uh, but those turnovers really cost them. Whereas Atlanta, they they kept, kept Desmond Ritter in kid gloves and he just wasn't asked to do much of anything. And yeah. I, I think that works. Like we have these teams in this archetype where this happens and those teams can be good against bad teams because you play with the lead. You, you don't, you avoid mistakes. Your, you know, your defense is okay. That, you know, Falcons defense played pretty well. And so you can win those games where things go your way and you play bad teams, which is fortunate for Atlanta because their schedule looks pretty easy. So they're going to have a lot of these games where they win 24, 10 and we're like, yeah, but they weren't impressive. It's like, okay, they're in the playoffs now. What are we going to do? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> whereas I think the Panthers are on a higher, higher upside trajectory with the way they handle Bryce young. I think, it's going to take longer, but, you know, give me Bryce Young throwing interceptions like all year, right? If you're the Panthers fan, you, you want them to be doing that because you want next year, bring in a better receiver and you have that experience. Like, you know, the, the what is it, Andrew Luck through 30, no, Peyton Manning through 30 interceptions or something his, his rookie year. Yeah, like, 26 or something like that. Yeah, right. And and I think that's I think that's how they're treating Bryce Young is it's year one of a long, uh, long-term commitment. And I was encouraged more by what the Panthers did than what the Falcons did. I still think the Falcons are a better team right now, but um, I think the, the Panthers have a higher upside in, in the long run. I wrote two notes. I share a lot of the same sentiments as you. I wrote, I want to see what Atlanta looks like playing from behind because it's one thing for Desmond Ritter to have a 3.3 A dot because he's protecting a lead that Carolina kind of put themselves in a bit of a hole. Let's see what happens when he's got to be the one making the drives and playing from behind. And then I wrote, a lot of I remember tweeting out uh, during free agency that I like how Atlanta has spent their money better than the Bears. And it wasn't this I love Atlanta's free agent plan. I just hated the way the Bears spent their money. And then a lot of people, you know, countered with, yeah, Jesse Bates, though, you paid a safety top of the market money. But Jesse Bates was a difference maker and he always has Absolutely. been. And, yep. and I like Jesse Bates. Um, I think they paid for a good player. Those were my notes. And I wrote, Frank Reich is amazing because he he gets all the he has all the right tendencies for aggression on going for it on fourth and one, but for some reason he draws up some of the worst plays when you have to yeah. actually have to execute like fourth and short stalls on the eleven yard line that that swings the whole game because that's potentially a touchdown drive and who knows where the game goes after that. Yeah, totally. Let's uh, move on in New England Philly uh, film review. Um, I wanted to, I didn't have a bet on this game. Um, my line was three and a half Philly. Um, so I wanted to break down, um, why I'm higher than market on new England. And I saw some good things that kind of affirmed my position. The first drive for Philly, they do well, uh, goal to go, but three stops, they hold them to a field goal. Then the disaster happens. New England throws a, a pick six and it's a high throw. It, 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 he absolutely sailed the throw. 
but tips off the receiver's hands to end up in a corner's hands, return for a pick six, a little bit of a high variance freaky play. The very next play of the next drive, they fumble the ball on their own 26. So before you know it, Eagles are up 16-0 before the game settles in. The very next four drives for the Philadelphia offense are all three uh, three and outs. The New England defense played very well, just got put in a lot of bad positions. In in, in fact, like I, the Eagles scored nine points the rest of the game from eight minutes into the into the first quarter. I thought Philly's offense doesn't look good yet, and that is important and of note because you know there is a question of is there going to be a drop off with Shane Steichen gone and a new play caller. I thought Eagles' run defense looks improved. Man, I think Jalen Carter, every game we watch from him, I think the takeaway is always going to be, how did Seattle, who is in desperate need of a D-lineman, pass on a guy like this? And I know there's you know red flag uh, concerns. I thought the middle of the Eagles' pass D, though, was very bad. Like there, There's a lot of opportunities to carve them uh, through the seams. And I said, Kyle Shanahan is going to see this defense. And if it doesn't get better... Quickly, he's going to tear them apart because Shanahan loves to live over the middle and he's got the playmakers to do it. Um, and I said, if you showed someone this film, Clark, and you eliminated the pick six and, and the fumble, the two back-breaking plays, and said who was the better team, I think your average person would come away with the conclusion that the Patriots were the better team on Sunday. Well, then call me the average person because I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, they, they were just better. And and there's a couple couple takeaways for me that, you know, mobile quarterbacks against Bill Belichick that's been kind of thorn in his side in, in recent years. We saw Justin Fields last year. We see Josh Allen year after year. And it really wasn't much of an issue for him in this game. And that's I think that's encouraging if you're a Patriots fan. I think it's also for me, it's a wrestling match in my in my head in terms of how much do I want to adjust raw numbers for specific matchup tendencies like. When you, when you notice something that happens again and again, you're like, oh, I should probably factor this into my betting. But sometimes that's just uh, confirmation bias. And, you know, we yeah. want to see something that's not there. And and I try not to lean too much into those small sample size trends like that. So, you know, I, I held off on a bet on this game in part for that reason and uh, was encouraged to see the, the Patriots defense play well against the Eagles. And, you know, Jalen Hurts last year had so much time in the pocket that I worry a little bit about some of these games where he's going to have less time to process um, so that's something to, to watch moving forward. I also, uh, I don't like to dirty up my number. I, I want my number to be based on my eyes. And then I have a separate number based on data. And then I have the third aspect where I actually have to handicap how the matchup breaks down. And, and, and just so I, because I feel if you blend too much, you get, you, you find yourself with a number that, uh, you know, th there's a lot of biases. And if you don't weight it properly, you come out with something that might be misleading. Let's talk about quarterback talk. I want to highlight three quarterbacks uh, in particular. Let's start off with Tua Tagovailoa. There was a poll out there that asked, who is the best quarterback in the AFC East right now? And 83% said Tua Tagovailoa. So, <laughs> you know, there are people overreacting. But I wanted to fight back yesterday. You know, I took a position that I said, I am tired of Tua being lumped in with Kirk Cousins and Jimmy G. I said they could only dream of ever having the ceiling that he displays. But I don't, he's obviously not on the level of a Joe Burrow or a Justin Herbert or a Josh Allen. But I think it's fair to start talking about him in that Dak Prescott, Stafford, eight to 10 range as a quarterback. 
Clark, what say you? Where are you on Tua Tagovailoa, who is easily the most polarizing player in the NFL right now? Uh, this might explain a little bit why he's so polarizing, but this is my analogy for Tua, okay? You get all the quarterbacks in the NFL lined up to, at, at an archery range, right? And you got that target with the 10 circles, and they all fire 100 arrows at their targets. Tua is going to have the most bullseyes of any, any quarterbacks out there. But he's also going to have the fewest amount of arrows on the target because so many of his completely missed the target. Absolutely. Like he is, he's so accurate on so many throws. And then, you know, four, five, six times a game, it's just like, what was that throw? It was so ugly. And he got away with some in this game uh, against the Chargers. There's one that should have been intercepted and a couple that just had no chance of being caught. Um, but some of his better plays, like the one, you know, the, the highlight went around, you know, Twitter. He steps up in the pocket and nails Tyreek Hill on third down. It was a great, great throw. So he's he's a highlights and lowlights kind of quarterback, which is not typically the kind of quarterback that I like. Um, and, you know, to be fair, Josh Allen was pretty highlight and lowlight <laughs> last night yeah. and recently too. But uh, the, the difference is I don't think Tua has a reactionary gear. Like it, in right now, you know, Tyreek Hill's getting open 10, 15 yards downfield within two seconds of the snap. And he just, you know, throws it over the middle. It's like, you know, his processing speed is great. His accuracy is great, but it's it's really not that hard for him. And so I don't really see that changing, right? Like defense is going to have to figure this out. They're going to have to play more press man, really disrupt these routes. Mike McDaniel seems to have it all figured out in terms of getting two of those easy throws. So even if I was an anti-Tua guy... I, I don't think that's a reason to doubt him this year because he is in the system that he's in. Now, if Tyreek Hill gets hurt, Jalen Waddle gets hurt, I think those are very, very concerning because I don't think Tua has an answer uh, other than what's happening right now. You know what, though, Clark, for every time that he gets doubted, like I heard Teron Armstead is out and he's going to get sacked 100 times and his pocket presence is not talked about enough. He knows how to step up in the proc, uh, in the pocket. He keeps his eyes downfield, always looking to make the big play. His A dot is through the roof. So, like this idea that Tua's this check down quarterback and he's only accurate because he's checking every. He's not Jimmy G. Tua takes deep shots. He he he, and he happens to have high CPOE and EPA. So I'm gonna have to like I I want this sample size. And I and I joked with uh with Suma. I said about the next quarterback we're going to talk about. I said Burrow stunk up the joint, possibly the worst quarterback in the NFL on Sunday. And I said, divide the 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 blame in a pie. Uh, give me a percentage of why Burrow stunk. And we had four parameters. We said the weather, his rust. We said his uh, calf issue and Cleveland's defense. And he divided up the pie. And I said, you know what's funny? If Tua had that game, the, the, the pie would be 100% that Tua sucks. It's like, People are unable to have any context with Tua. He's either better than Herbert and Burrow, you know, or Josh Allen, according to the poll, or he's just this awful quarterback who's fortunate to be the system he's in. And I'm like, let's can we uh, narrow down some better context of what range he is? If you had to call it, Clark, all things considered, we know the system he's in and the players he's with. Um, where would you put Tua in a range? Well, I don't evaluate quarterbacks independent of circumstances because I think that's fruitless and creates uh, arbitrary yes. priors. Yes. But within within the offense that he's currently running, I think you know he can be a top five quarterback uh, in the NFL. I, I think that Mahomes, Allen, Herbert, and Burrow are, are clearly better, and then I think there is a real question mark after that. Um, 
and with the weapons that he has and the offense that he has, I mean, they were my highest graded offense in week one. That's so far. I haven't graded the Cowboys. I don't know if they're going to match that, but the, the Dolphins were my highest graded offense and Tua, they obviously were pass heavy. It was, you know, it was obviously Tua making it happen. I think anyone who doubts Tua needs to explain why the Dolphins were so bad on offense when he was injured last year, right? Yeah. Like if, if it's just a system quarterback, then why wasn't Teddy Bridgewater, who was like eighth or ninth in EPA per play the year before with the Broncos? Why, why was Teddy Bridgewater not, you know, on Tua's level in that offense? Why was, uh, you know, Skylar Thompson so terrible? Like I know it's Skylar Thompson, whatever. We'll, you know, we'll see if Tua gets hurt, what Mike White does. But I just think that you can't really say it's only the system. You have to say it's the system fitting to what Tua does well. And that is what Mike McDaniel has figured out is how to make Tua the best Tua that he can be. And that's what we're seeing right now. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Let's move on to Joe Burrow. Uh, listen, he was he had they had six first downs. Like I don't know how much more to put this. They were awful. Um, let's preface it. We both bet on the Browns. I usually don't play angles, but I did play an angle. I, I went out in two weeks ago and I said, um, like my true line is Bengals minus one and a half. It's not that far off from the two and a half that it currently was. But I am going to bet against a guy who is not. Forget about not playing in preseason. He hasn't even been practicing. He hasn't been throwing to his receivers. He's a rhythm guy, and there's no rhythm. And the last time we saw this, when he missed preseason last year, he looked awful early in the season. Um, chalk it up to what, Clark? Why did Burrow look as bad as he did? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. I, I'm i not putting a ton of weight into this game. I mean, I, I am on the on the Browns' defense side because I think the Browns' defense made it really, really difficult for him. But I think two things. One is he clearly wasn't 100%, right? I, I don't know whether it was an inability to plant his his foot when he was throwing or if it's if something with his hands. Like I saw his gloves strewn on the field at one point. Like I don't really understand what was going on, but he was like push passing some of these passes. And any time that he had to roll out of the pocket and make a play on the run, he just kind of gave up. He like threw it in the dirt or like whatever. Like I don't know if he didn't want to take a hit or like – didn't have that confidence to run, but it was like, and very early in that game, the, the Bengals gave up, right? They, they were still mathematically alive and they started huddling, you know, I think it was maybe eight or nine minutes left down 21 and they were huddling and running the ball. And it was like, what, you know, you, you guys are just, you know, packing it in. And I think that is part of it. The other part of it is, you know, when you're comparing guys like Josh Allen and Justin Herbert and Patrick Mahomes to guys like Burrow and Tua, it's, what can they create when the pressure is relentless and burrow doesn't have that answer like his only answer is well i can get rid of the ball so fast that the pressure isn't relentless and in this case the Browns defensive line was getting to him so consistently and he couldn't do that we've seen patrick mahomes justin herbert josh allen make plays in those situations out of structure and we haven't seen that from burrow so i think we saw both limitations that aren't going to be permanent combined with burrow's weaknesses coming out against a really tough browns defensive line um, that I think we'll see again, even when Burrow is 100%, we're going to see some of those struggles again. And that's why I don't think of Burrow as that same level as those other three guys. It's funny, uh, Miles Garrett was doing this like crossover before a pass rush, you know, where you're pretending you got a ball, dribbling it through your legs, and he got the pressure too. And I, I thought to myself, this is a guy who's been like the guy by himself forever. And now he's got like a whole pack of homies with him and like they're rushing the quarterback. And now try to stop the guy when you got a block four capable pass rushers in their NASCAR package. It, it's kind of dangerous. And the Browns defense kind of looks really good. You know who might hold them back though, because they got an elite O-line. They got an elite run game. They got a, a, a really good defense, maybe elite, but 
the guy who they're paying 260 million to doesn't look like he's worth 260 million right now. He's skipping balls in. He has not looked like any form of Watson from two and three years ago. Clark, um, I know you've been you've been one guy who said he I don't think Watson was ever Watson, let alone right now. What are your thoughts when you watch Deshaun Watson struggle? And do you have any uh, hope that he's going to turn it around? Um, I mean, any hope <laughs> I have, like anything's possible, right? But no, I, I'm going to keep victory lapping this. This is like one of my best ever tweets. When the Browns traded for Watson, I tweeted out, Watson wasn't worth that even if there were no sexual allegation or sexual misconduct allegations because he just wasn't that good of a player. Um, and so, yeah, I feel really vindicated. Everyone's like, well, look at this offensive line, look at the weapons, look at the run game, look at the defense. If Watson was anywhere close to what people think he is, the Browns should be Super Bowl favorites, right? Yeah. Um, but he's terrible. He skipped passes all day, all day, just throwing them in the dirt. No chance for the receiver to make the play. You know, Nick Chubb bailed him out several times. I, this is a this is a Browns offense that is just going to be mediocre unless Deshaun Watson suddenly turns around. We've seen seven games now. You know, you talk about rust, but he came back for six games, had an offseason, had, a, you know, a home game against the Bengals. Granted, the weather was bad. Like, we got to we got to recognize that the weather was bad in several games last year. So there's some noise in the numbers, but just on the eye test, he's not he's not dominating games. He's not winning games from the quarterback position. He may not need to. You know, the Browns could make the playoffs with him playing the way he did uh, on Sunday because of the, the way the rest of the team plays. But. Um, I think that's going to be a problem coming up against the the big dogs in, in the AFC in the playoffs. Well, he's got a Monday night football game this week and all eyeballs will be on him. Let's talk about uh, teams we've upgraded or downgraded the most. I like your position of, hey, uh, I know we got to stick to our priors, but I also like to uh, factor in new data points and adjust early if I have to. Who's the team that you had to put up in your ratings and who's the team that you had to put down? Yeah, I think the week one to week two transition is all about what are we reacting to? What are we trying to overreact to? What are we trying to underreact to? And for me, the the biggest upgrade on a unit that I made, I think, is the Lions defense. Uh, I came into the year very skeptical. I knew they had added pieces, and I knew that they looked somewhat better down the stretch last year, but they've been so bad for so many years that it was hard for me to envision a Lions defense that was actually good. And when you play the Chiefs, you know, you can look at the numbers and say, well, you know, if if the Chiefs catch those passes, like they had four drops that were in high leverage situations, the the numbers look way worse for the Lions defense. But, you know, I, I don't care about the numbers. What, I, what I'm looking at when you play the Chiefs is, did you make it difficult for Patrick Mahomes? That That's the challenge for the Chiefs when you're playing the Chiefs. And the Lions made it difficult for Patrick Mahomes throughout the game. Like nothing came easy. He was making miracle plays when they were moving the ball. And even on the drops, they were throws that not, you know, one quarterback in the NFL can make that throw. And sure, it was dropped, but like the Lions forced Mahomes into making those low percentage throws to where the drops. It, it reminded me of the Bucks Chiefs Super Bowl where Mahomes was playing, you know, making these incredible throws and the receivers were dropping them. But it was like, sure, the Bucks were forcing Mahomes into those bad throws and the offensive line didn't help, obviously, but... But that's, that was my question going in. The Lions really, really impressed me. So I think this defense needs to be regarded as a good defense, maybe average defense until we see more data. But that's way better than where I had them coming in. Well, Aiden Hutchinson looks like a, a game wrecker. And, and if he can continue to do that, that is going to be really good for the Lions. And I thought C.J. Gardner-Johnson brought a level of leadership 
and frankly, a level of like being able to create a turnover uh, in, yeah, the, in the second like, year. Like the fight, yeah. A mentality, like he brought a he brought a leadership component that yeah. maybe we didn't know who the Lions' leader was defensively last year, and now I've got some ideas of who it could be. Um, for me, I already told you I had to adjust the Rams up. Uh, not that I'm like flying them up the boards. I just I need to stop thinking about them as a doormat because um, Stafford is too good of a quarterback to think of them like that. Who's the team that you adjusted down or a, a positional unit that you had to adjust down? That's a good question. I, I haven't finished watching all the games, so I haven't graded all the teams. Um, I did. I did downgrade the Chargers defense. Um, you know, when you when you think about the fact that the Dolphins were missing Teron Armstead and that last year the the Chargers with, you know, some guys hurt managed to like really shut down that Dolphins offense and just how poorly they played, how easy it was for the Dolphins all day. I mean, like I said, it was the best offensive forms of the year or of the week or of the year too, I guess. Yeah. Um, and that goes as much to the Dolphins offense as it does to the Chargers defense. They were a doormat. Um, and that is a problem. Like I was kind of hoping, you know, I have, I have some charges futures out there and, and I was kind of hoping like, okay, well, the, we, we know the offense is good. The defense just needs to be average based on that game. I think average is, is a stretch. You know, we're going to have to see if they, they get it together. It's only one data point. You can't, you know, overreact, but I'm concerned. Yeah. their secondary. Uh, it doesn't match up well against any of the elite passing attacks in the AFC. Uh, this sounds like uh like adjusting one team up and then adjusting their opponent down sounds like a crazy thing to do. But when you take Seattle five and a half in a circa millions contest and the Rams win by 17, you know, there's a little clearly you weren't just wrong on the Rams, George. You're a little too high on Seattle and they're like non-existent defense. That's a team that, um, you know, with their out, offensive tackles potentially out short term uh, and a team that's unable to generate a pass rush or unable to stop the pass uh, like that's that's the markings of a really bad defense let's go into the thursday night football preview clark let's uh give these people a little breakdown of philadelphia and minnesota and if you're enjoying the content please smash the like button um minnesota in philly the line right now is sitting at seven on pinnacle the line flirted with seven and a half but it seems like you know once the james bradbury news came in it, people brought the line back down to seven. The total has been floating between 48 and 48 and a half. Clark, when you see the Thursday night football game, where do you start thinking about this? Uh, so it was actually seven and a half and eight earlier in the week, which I thought was a bit shocking because the look aheads, which, you know, we know the look aheads are not particularly efficient, but the look aheads had this at seven. And so the number went higher based on, you know, week one, which I thought was a shock because like we said, the Patriots outplayed the Eagles for the most part of that game. I also thought the, the Vikings got pretty unlucky against the Bucks. Same, I'm also same. I thought yeah. both both box scores were two of the yeah, more misleading right. box scores of the week. Yeah, and and I was higher on the Bucks coming into the year. You know that was my my one of my favorite bets this week. But like, I was surprised that it went up. It's gone back down to seven, which I think is fair. And I think you can make the case on both sides. The the case for the the Eagles is basically look what happened last year, right? Yeah. The Eagles absolutely destroyed the, the Vikings. It was embarrassing, and it was on prime time, and it wasn't it wasn't close. The score I think was twenty four seven or something. Yeah, but this it was even more of a blowout than the score suggested. Um, so so you have that you know that prior in your head, and not too much has changed on each team, but. I think on the other side, you know, the Vikings were kind of, that was early in the season. We talked, you know, they had a new head coach, talked about how they kind of took a while to really gel outside of that week one game against Green Bay. 
Um, and I, I think the analog that I make to last year was when the Eagles played against Arizona. They played against a team that has a very bad defense, but a very aggressive defense, right? The Cardinals blitzed like crazy, but they just didn't have the talent to back it up. And they really caused Jalen Hurts some issues in that game. It was 20 to 17 Eagles, and the offense didn't look great. And I think it was because that quick pressure forces Jalen Hurts to make quick decisions, and that's the weakness in his game. Yeah. So now we're fast forwarding to this year and the Vikings after being super passive last year, now have Brian Flores. Oh yeah. They're going to be aggressive. They don't have the talent, but they're going to be aggressive and they're going to force quick decisions out of Jalen Hurts. And I think that is potentially good for the Vikings defense in this game. I know a lot of people like the over and it's going to be a shootout, whatever. I'm not so convinced. Um, I think, think this could be a more defensive battle than, than people think. So. I, I also think Minnesota's offense looks a little a lot more dynamic this year. I think Jordan Addison adds an, a level of explosiveness that you just didn't have with Thielen anymore. Hawkinson yeah. obviously has, was a much better weapon once they acquired him. And, you know, even though I like the Bucks defense and their secondary, Justin Jefferson is unguardable. He's like a whole Absolutely. other a whole other animal. And when I when I think of this game, um, I actually my numbers make it uh, lower than seven, and I I kind of like Minnesota. It's, I think they're they're frisky here, and, and I, I think this is going to be a tighter game than people expect. Yeah, I agree with that. And you know, you got the short week. The other thing, I don't these don't play into my actual numbers. Like I'm betting based on what my numbers say. But if you're looking for like reasons to feel comfortable about what your <laughs> what your numbers say, um, the Eagles won last week. Right. So, so we talk about how disappointing they were on the field. And I'm sure I'm sure they know that they were disappointing, like they got some things to fix. But tell me the sense of urgency on a team like Kansas City that actually lost the game is yeah. higher than the urgency of a team like the Eagles that won the game. And they're like, yeah, like we, we can be better. We can do this better. We, but the urgency isn't necessarily going to be there in the same way had they lost to the Patriots as fans. Yes. Yes. Um, Whereas the Vikings little, lost a, yeah. a game that they could have won. And I think, I think there's some, you know, I don't know how much those really impact the score, and I don't recommend betting psychological angles solely, but it does make me more comfortable with the idea of betting the Vikings in this one. Yeah, I never do psychological angles. Even, um, you know, when somebody dies and everybody's trying to handicap if they're going to be yeah. too depressed to play or fired up. <laughs> like, you guys are animals. Like, I, I don't even yeah. know where you begin to think that you could figure out the, the psychology and the mentality of 53 guys. I have no interest in that. I prefer to look at data. I prefer to look at matchups. Uh, and that's how I like to make my bets. Uh, Clark, I really enjoyed this. Um, I am looking forward to doing this every Tuesday. We'll be breaking down games that we watched that maybe had some misleading box scores or there was tidbits that we took out of them that you won't find in the stat line. Um, We'll be back again tomorrow at 2 o'clock with Rob Pozzola, Eric Eager, Suma, and Hitman. They'll be giving out their best bets and game-by-game betting previews. You don't want to miss it, so please subscribe. Hit the notifications bell so you don't miss any of the content this year. Forward progress Monday to Friday and Sundays. We've got you covered. Sponsored by Pinnacle. 25 years of competitive odds. Your trusted sportsbook. Bet smart. Bet Pinnacle. Must be 19 plus in Ontario. Not available in the U.S. That's it for me. Thanks to Sharp Clark. Thanks to producer Jason. And thanks to you, the audience. Until next time.